You are listening to Yo Teach, the Iowa Council of Teachers of English podcast, episode five. This month, we take you inside one of the breakouts from last month's NCAMP held up in Ames. We hear from middle school teacher Britt Young about the happenings from her first few days of the school year. And as always, I'll give you a few titles to put on your TBR radar. Hey everybody, Austin Hall here. As a member of the publications team of the ICTE Executive Board, it is my pleasure to welcome you to the Yo Teach podcast. The podcast is produced every month for your enjoyment, and notes from each episode can be found on the online home for ICTE, www.iowaenglishteachers.org. Be sure to check out the website for all things ICTE. You can follow our organization on Twitter at ICTE underscore board and find us on Facebook. All links are in the show notes. Now, let's get to the show. On Thursday, August 3rd, Ames played host to NCAMP, ICTE's annual unconference get-together. As is always the case whenever the ICTE community gets together, it proved to be a day full of learning, leading, and collaborating. During the third and final session of the day, I had the opportunity to sit down with Wendy Bolivar, Kelly Murley, Nikki Smith, and Kirsty Ewald to chat about book talks and reading. Here's your chance to be a fly on the wall. Our complete and camp roundtable conversation. That's one of the things that I like during the summer as I read. I'm like active. I'm sure you guys do too. Like as you're reading, you're thinking about. What are books that I want to like introduce to my students, and how am I going to go about talking about them? Because um, I honestly, I, I feel like that's a really hard thing for me is like giving a good quality book talk. Mm-hmm. And what does that um, what does that look like? One of the things that I did last year that uh, worked out okay, but I want to try again in a better form this year is actually having colleagues from different departments come in to give book talks because some of the most interesting books came from like the science teacher who came in. For instance, one of uh, the teachers, senior science teacher last year came in and talked about this book, Dark Matter by Blake Crouch. Um, Yeah, Blake Crouch, the author called Dark Matter. And basically the premise, it's like this, I'm gonna butcher the explanation of of talking about it, but really gets into this uh, experiment where, so like you take, this box or whatever, and I think the experiment calls for like a cat or a little kitten or whatever, and you put the kitten in the box and you close the box. Um, and according to this theory or this experiment, there are uh, different realities of what happens in that box before you open it. Huh. And you open it up and um, like that decides what of these options happen so like say you open it up and the cat is dead right well this theory or this experiment states that that cat isn't dead until you open up the box so if you didn't open up the box to reveal the reality right like multiple dimensional whatever so basically the story of this book is that this guy um and i think he's like a scientist or something like that like before i did this talk with my class i would go in and read a review and sort of get more authentically expert on, on the book. But he goes, um, th- this married guy, he has a son, I think he's a scientist, he goes to the local bar to celebrate one of his old college scientist friends. He's having a little toast or whatever at the bar. And on his way back home from the bar, um, this SUV pulls up, basically abducts him. Uh, and when he comes to, he realizes that he has woken up uh, and he's strapped into this like high-tech scientific area and everyone's like amazed that he has woken up uh, and they're shocked and excited and all these things at the same time but he's like where the hell am I and, and he tries to get out and people are like he realizes he's gonna have to bust himself out uh, and basically what's happened is he is like that cat in that proverbial box where he has they've been apparently trying this experiment however many different times and the person always dies but he has survived and it's a different iteration of who he was before. And so it's, it's this totally messed up thing where he's trying to get back to 
the right reality of the right version of his wife and the right version of himself and the right version of and so it turns into this super mystery whatever thing so to spin this forward to how I would do this as a book talk with my kids um, as I learned from the science guy he totally came in authentically geeked up about science in a way that they're not going to necessarily get from me which has made made the talk so awesome but I think starting up talking about that experiment of like that idea of like we want to be in control and sometimes it feels like oh fate determines our lives but what if we are really in control of these various aspects of our lives or maybe even selling it as like asking that question um, if our students like sometimes I find myself thinking what if I handled this particular part of my life years past in a different way how would that have changed what version or iteration of Austin Hall moving forward and that can be a really creepy thing to think about <laughs> sometimes too but I think that that's an idea that would really get kids interested in mm -hmm. a, a book so that's one that comes to mind I don't know if any of you want to jump in we were in Scythe this summer Kelly and I did for we have a on again off again uh, young adult book club Scythe Neil Shusterman who I absolutely love unwind and um, Challenger Deep, mm -hmm. both. Mm -hmm. And so Scythe is a utopia, not a dystopia, but a future utopia where everything is perfect and they've cured everything, but that means that people don't die because they've cured all the illnesses. Instead, when you're 100 and whatever or 70, whatever, you can what they call turn a corner, and that means that you can go back to like a 20-year-old body. So you have all your memories and all of who you are, but you turn back to being 20 years old. And then you can, you can do this however many times you want as soon as you're like of age, like 20 years old, you can turn corners however many times you want. So in a way to control the population, they have these sides who go around, this brotherhood of sides, I would call it. You have to be chosen. Yeah, well, right, to yes. Be, yes, you to have to be, be chosen one. to be a side. Um, and they go around performing what they call gleanings, which is killings. They just glean people. Um, and they have this whole, like, so the story follows this apprenticeship of these two different sides uh, working under one guy and how they go, how they become part of this, uh, this, this brotherhood of people and all the tests that they have to go through. Um, and they learn how different, different sides will decide um, how they want to, how they choose to glean somebody based di completely differently. They, they have mass gleanings, like taking out tons of people at a time, or they have just a very methodical way to do it or a very surprised way to do it and so it's fascinating to and it talks about how how are they chosen you get to, to pick the, each size gets to pick and they but have just ran each just yep. randomly gets yep. to choose well kind of they have to they can right. only glean so much of the population in like so they have like three times that they meet and they can only glean and like your ethnics it's like a so bunch it's like of an ethnicity yeah everything's combined so like you can only glean so many sixty-year, like sixty-year-olds, in like a certain time period. They track it. Oh, yeah. It's and so you have to glean like two hundred and forty people within yeah. this time period, and it has to. You can't show bias racially in any way, so you have to make sure you won't know it by looking at somebody. Sure. Of course, you have to make sure that they all have different. And they can offer us. I can offer immunity, like by allowing oh. them to like kiss their ring, and you can only offer immunity to so many people too, as well. So, and everything is controlled by, they call it the cloud. Thunderhead. Or the thunderhead. So, like. It's a, it's a cloud on steroids. It's yeah. It's a cloud on steroids. Is yeah. What it is. And, like, it's crazy. And so, like, and in the book, like, kids, like, a fun thing is, like, they just, like, will jump off of a tower and die because they bring you back to life. What they call that? Like flying or something like that? Leap, yeah, sleeping or, or something. But, but they would, it wasn't a big deal. And they would go in and get cured and come back. Might be gone like three days, but you'd come back and be fine. Because they could cure you. But so there also, wasn't a rubric for them to follow mm -hmm. for... Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> no, no checklist. There wasn't a checklist. No, no checklist. you got to meet the no particular... <laughs> no proficiency. Okay. So, like, the choose. turning point in the book kind of happens where, like, the two, like, main characters, though a site that chooses them to be their apprentice, well, you're not supposed to do that. Like... Not supposed to choose two. Not supposed oh. to choose two. And then when they go to this one conference, they see that they've kind of started to have feelings because also as a site like you're not allowed to kind of be like the general population anymore so they pit nobody these wants two, to be around you either and right. that's part of yeah so they pit these two against each other and whoever wins at the end to become the scythe or scythe keep saying it wrong um they have to kill the other one they their first act is one. to glean the other one yeah 
And so, so one, what was the competition? How did they determine which one? With, whoever won? At the end, like there's, and that's kind of, and I didn't see that coming at the end. Whoever so I can't won what? The apprenticeship. The whoever apprenticeship. got the better, whoever performed the better. better during oh. the apprenticeship. Oh, okay, I see. And that's mm-hmm. the big twist at the end, like to see what they have to do to finally become that. Um, and so then there's like, that's where you kind of get introduced to the villain in the story because there's a good scythe and then there's a not so good one and one gets put with like the like the villain and the other one gets put with oh. one who's a very human like anybody she gleans she meets with their family and like talks to them and gives them mm-hmm. like and then the other one is like really really mean and like just mass gleans people because it's become like a sport to him oh so it's really good. it makes you think mm-hmm. it's gonna be a movie that's too awesome. yeah. that's awesome yeah and sure it's gonna be three books it's a trilogy, so I'm excited to read. So, how would you go about if you're going to book talk that, say, soon? <laughs> <laughs> In three weeks. <laughs> right. How how would you go about book talking a book like that, or what would be your selling point? It doesn't really sound like a utopia to me. Right. You know what I mean? Like if if they're selling it as a utopia that people all live, that well, doesn't isn't sound part of utopian. It, like like the world's there's no. No sickness, no illness, no right. cancer, right. no nothing. Yeah. But that doesn't necessarily, like, I, But is I, that better than... Yeah. Right. So that would be probably my lead. My definition is, is, like, what is the perfect, what's the utopia, right. first of all, and... Or, like, what if you could live forever? Yeah, yeah right. that would be interesting, too. What age would you pick to be? Yeah. Yeah. What, you'd be returning the corner, yeah. Uh, Ray Bradbury wrote a short story called Tomorrow, 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 which is a similar concept. They live forever. There's no green space anymore. Families are fighting over this teeny tiny apartment. And finally the grandfather um, dies, but because he stops taking the anti-Jerison and then the whole family gets put in jail and they love jail because they each have their own space and TV. And at home they don't have that because it's overcrowded. Wow. Yeah, super good pairing. That'd be an interesting comparison for a kid. Yeah. Have any of you read anything by Jeff Zentner? He wrote The Serpent King was his first yes, book. Yes, that's the one I read. Okay. Yeah. I just finished like two days ago his second book called Goodbye Days. And it is, it's, uh, I really, really like it. Uh, and I think it's an interesting one because the, the premise is one that as a teacher, I find myself wanting to address more than I do, uh, which is like the danger of texting, like texting while driving and stuff. And so the premise of the book is um, the main character, and his name is totally slipping my mind right now, uh, Carver, Carver Briggs. Um, he, it's sort of established that he is part of like this four group uh, gang of friends, all guy characters. Um, and his other three friends on this one particular night are just sort of cruising around the local town. He's meeting up with them later. And so he texts one of his friends uh, who he knew was going to be the one driving that night. Hey, where are you guys? Uh, and ultimately what happens is the kid who gets the text looks down, and there's a car accident and instantly all three of them die. But they're able to track based on when the accident happened that he was looking at the text that Carver had sent to him. So it starts off where he's like at a series of these three funerals for his best friends. Um, and he has this immense guilt, but there's also people in the town who want to potentially press charges against mm-hmm. him for being responsible for the death of his three friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the, t- the cover of the book is just amazing because it looks like a cracked phone screen and like those three yeah, dots, like when you're texting. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, I don't know, it just gets you. But, uh, but basically what happens then, it's brought out by uh, one of the kids, Blake's grandmother, she wants to have what she calls a goodbye day, uh, which is basically her hanging out with him, Carver, to sort of share in all of the great things that he, she used to do with Blake or whatever, to sort of celebrate instead of like an anti-funeral, have this day to sort of celebrate him or whatever. And so it ends up being a series of these with the different uh, kids, but it's a great book for kids or anyone really dealing with like the guilt or whatever longing of a, a a friend who's moved Great. on or whatever. I, unbelievable, good book. Sounds really good. Yeah. I just read Before I Fall. Have any of you guys read that one? So it's basically, um, it's kind of like a Mean Girls take. But so what happens is there's this girl and she's with the popular crowd or whatever. And it's a take on Mean Girls and Groundhog Day is kind of <laughs> how I mash it together. Oh. So for seven days, she keeps reliving the accident. 
And um, there's an enhanced version. Did you know that? Yes, that's the one I read. Okay. <laughs> yeah, with like there's the extra. a enhanced edition. Yeah. Okay. And, um, and it's just kind of interesting because it she starts to think about like what she has to do in order to get out of keep reliving this day. So like for the first two days, she dies again in the accident, and then she figures out that another person dies that same night too and so she figures out um by the end of the book and this won't wreck it but that it's suddenly not about her in order for her to move on it's not about saving it's about changing herself and then kind of like but who she has to save and then also that like she's kind of like the good girl but with like the mean girl group Mm. so she kind of starts to realize like all of the mean things about her friends but that why they're mean or why they act mm-hmm. that way. So, um, and again, it just kind of made you think about like, what would you do if you had a second chance mm-hmm. to like change things? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it was, it was really good. So, and I was able for, my husband has a lot of kids read it for his independent reading class. And so I was able to help him answer that end question of, does she change? And she does. <laughs> so I guess he needed the adult version of it, not the. I think that's interesting that you brought a book about her reliving the same thing Austin's first book was about the dude kind of buried realities but still mm-hmm. living. I don't know. No, I, I just seem to yeah. yeah. So the book that I just finished um, is Paula Hawkins Into the Water. Did any of you I read? It. I haven't read it yet. Okay. Um, so she's the same chick who wrote The Girl on the Train. Mm-hmm. I haven't read that book, but I. I've read this one because it appealed to me more, I guess, the storyline. So some things that I really liked about it um, is that each chapter is told by a different character's perspective. Um, I don't know if she did that in The Girl on the Train because I've not read that, but that was interesting. Um, And one character, when it switches to one character, it kind of picks up where the other one left off, which is interesting. Normally when I've seen that done, like in Jodi Picoult, it's like some, it's totally a different thing. But in this one, it picks up, but from a different person's perspective. So that's really an interesting, I thought, structure. If you haven't, if you don't know much about it, it's about um, this woman named Jules, whose sister Nell dies. Um, it's set in Beck, Beckford or Beckworth, I think it's Beckford, England. Um, and Jules ha- is living in London and she has to go back to Beckford, um, a place that doesn't have a lot of really great memories for her um, from her family. Um, and when she gets there, she finds out that Nell has died in this part of the river that runs through Beckford called the Drowning Pool. Um, and the drowning pool is is really the center of the text because throughout history in this town, women have died in that place, uh, starting with Libby. No, yeah, Libby, um, who sort of died during like the witch trials. And so it gives you some of the background of that. Nell was sort of obsessed with this place. And so she was doing a lot of research about all the women who had died there, including one of the most recent deaths of a 16-year-old girl um, who was best friends with her daughter. Um, And so when Jules gets there, um, she sort of is a bit estranged from Nell and she has to sort of figure out um, how she's gonna deal with uh, Nell's daughter, and I can't remember what Nell's daughter's name is for the life of me right now, but she also doesn't believe either that Nell committed suicide, which is what's often thought that people go there to commit suicide, women go there to commit suicide. Um, So she's kind of investigating that, and you get lots of different perspectives um, throughout the book. The theme of water throughout the whole thing is really interesting. Like when one of the detective sergeants gets there for the first time, she talks about how no matter where you go in that town, it always leads you back to the river, which I thought was interesting. And the whole story centered around the river. I don't know, it's just, that was just an interesting phrase that stuck with me. Um, It's an interesting look at the role, not the role of women, the perception of women in sort of the 21st century, like, 
how women might be perceived as problems, quote unquote, and how you deal with those problems? And has, has the perception of women really changed from the witch trials when if you are a woman who is different, are you really being perceived any differently now? It, it was just, that was interesting to think about. I, I wouldn't say that it's um, a well-written text necessarily. I would say it's more of a good read. You know what I mean? Right. The, kind of the difference between, like, it's, it's a, an entertaining book. The structure is interesting. I will say that. The structure is really interesting, and especially when she weaves in the stories of the women who have died in the drowning pool before. But it's kind of like a Da Vinci Code, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a entertaining read. The ending, though, like... And I'm going to give it away, but... So the very last chapter gives you um, some answers to some things that you've really been thinking about. So it's satisfying in that way. But the very ending of it, um, (laughs) the very ending of it, I was not satisfied with, and I'm not sure that it really meshed with the rest of the book or how the characters were written. I'll just put it that way. So I want you to read it so we can have a talk. So we can talk about it. Because I want to know what you think about it. We will return to the podcast after a short message brought to you by the ICTE Executive Board. If you're listening to this podcast, then you know that one of our favorite parts of the year for those of us in the Iowa Council of Teachers of English family is the annual fall conference. If you haven't yet done so, please take a moment to head over to our website, www.iowaenglishteachers.org, and register for this year's conference. It will be held at the Stony Creek Inn in Johnston, Iowa on October 12th and 13th. This year's theme is Empowered by Story, United Through Words. And we're thrilled to be joined by keynote speakers, Christine Dawson, author of the Teacher Writer, Creating Writing Groups for Personal and Professional Growth, and Thomas Newkirk, author of Minds Made for Stories, How We Really Read and Write Informational and Persuasive Texts. Don't forget the worthwhile discussions, unique learning, and life-changing networking with many knowledgeable colleagues around the state. We hope to see all of you there. So take a minute, hit pause on the podcast, and head over to our website, and be sure that you register today. Thanks. We went on vacation to Florida and we stayed in a condo and one whole shelf in this condo had these books that people had left. And so I picked picked up this book called The Ice Cream Queen of Orchard Street um, by Susan Jane Gilman. And, um, you know, it has this big ice cream cone on the front of it. And I was like, I love ice cream. Let's see what this is about. <laughs> so, um, the thing is, so it starts with the main character's name. Her name is Milka. Um, she is in Russia. And it starts when she immigrates with her family from Russia to the United States. Um, it talks about how they get the tickets to come over to um being on the boat and how sick they were on the boat to going through Ellis Island and then from that point all of the the Russian people that greeted them at Ellis Island and helped them sort of assimilate and then they went and lived in this tenement housing and found jobs but Milka her mom pretty much said you and your sister need to go out and don't come home until you have either found food or money and then she would say this every day and she was like five it is fiction but so that she would find these little things to do where she could run errands for people and make money because so the family was super poor and the dad disappears at one point and then ends up showing up later. Um, so Milka is running this errand and she gets hit by a, a horse-drawn carriage and she's put in the hospital and they say that she'll never walk again or whatever. So while she's there, um, the person that ran her over he comes in and pays for, because he's wealthy, he comes in and pays for her hospital stay. And then when she leaves the hospital, he takes her home to his house. Because somehow in this time frame that her mother doesn't want her anymore because now she's damaged. 
Um, she can't. She can't do anything. She's never going to be able to work. She's not worth anything anymore. Um, so Milka go. She gets a new name when she is in the United States. I can't remember what it is. So this man that takes her in, um, he sells ice cream on street out of a cart, and it kind of tells you the history of how ice cream was sold. And they used to just put it in a cup, and then everyone would use the same cup and so I you at Austin would eat his ice cream then he'd give me the cup back I'd fill it up and then I'd hand it to somebody else um and so she um without it being washed right mm -hmm. <laughs> perfect so, yeah <laughs> so she um one gets, yeah right yeah <laughs> she gets to see a functional family this family because her family was very dysfunctional and so the mother there makes her like get up and walk and and use her legs so that she can be, you know, a, a functional part of, of the family and teaches her the craft of making ice cream. And so it tells the story of their success um, and how they went from having a cart to then having a store. And then the father dies. Um, and uh, Milka has, she knows how to run the company. She's gone to college, they sent her to college, but they won't let her work because she's a woman and the women can't, you know, you don't know anything about running this business. But what they find is, she, so she went to like secretary school or whatever, is that she can, she's a business person, she can run the business. And so she comes in, she starts working, and then there's like a, a competitive company with the ice cream industry and they start stealing business. So she starts to be able to um, do that competitive marketing and things like that. Well, her father's, her father's company it goes under because they sold the brothers sold it underneath her to this competing competitive competing company so then she gets married and she starts her own company um, based on what she learned from her stepfather. and this is her new family yep okay yep so based on what she learned she starts a new company and it is um, it's amazing she her and her husband they sell it out of a truck and then they go and they have warehouses. She is just, and then during the wars, they have this ice cream submarine that goes and feeds ice cream to soldiers. So it's <laughs> kind of like historical fiction. Mm -hmm. And so towards the end, it starts cutting back and forth from her story to present day. But what happens is, is that people think that she um, is, is just not very nice because in this growth of her company, they had a children's program, which really reminded me of Floppy, that she was on there and she had this like little um, character that would dress up with her, but she would always get, she had alcohol abuse problems. She would get drunk and one time this little girl said something to her and she slapped her. And so then she had lawsuits and then she was charged with tax evasion. And so you, it just kind of goes back and forth about how she got her fame, but then everybody kind of turns against her um, in the end and she realizes that you know she just really wanted a family but in the end she ostracizes everyone in her family and she really is kind of a not very nice person um, but but you kind of hear her struggles and how you know her husband died and the only person by her side is her grandson and um, it was it was really good um, I read it in a week and I couldn't put it down so I thought that was there's a lot of references to history that are true I really enjoyed it I don't think I've talked about Ghost of Heaven before. Maybe mm -mm. Ghost of Heaven. This is written by Marcus Sedgwick. Um, he's probably most well known for his book Midwinter Blood. Won the Prince Award a couple of years ago. Um, I personally like Ghost of Heaven a lot better. Uh, it's one of those books that's really weird, but like in a awesome way. Um, <laughs> it's basically four different, about eighty-page length uh, stories that seemingly have absolutely nothing in common except for an image of a spiral that appears in all four stories. Um, the first, and, and what's cool too is he even has like an author's note in there in the beginning where he says that you can read the stories in any order, much like a spiral. It doesn't matter where you jump onto the story oh, cool and you're going to get the same effect. Uh, but so the first chronologically, the first story. Five forty nine on Amazon. Oh, right. Five forty nine <laughs> on Amazon, people. Uh, so the first story, and what's cool too, is that each story is like it feels almost like it's written by a different author because it's 
reads in an entirely different way. Like the, mm. uh, the just narrative style is totally different. Mm-hmm. So the first story reads almost like poetry or formatted in that way. I wouldn't necessarily call it poetry, but it has that feel to it. Uh, and it's set in like this, I guess you call it like prehistory, almost feels like a tribal uh, group of people. And there's not a whole lot of uh, written, spoken language going on. It feels prehistoric in some ways. Uh, it turns into a little bit of a mystery there. Uh, the second story, uh, Kirsty, when you were talking about the uh, witch stuff mm-hmm. earlier, it's sort of set in England during mm-hmm. the witch hysteria there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so pre-Salem, but definitely yeah. has that vibe to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the third story takes place in uh, what feels like East Coast, New York, or whatever, in a mental hospital. And the spiral appears there uh, as a staircase that sort of connects the various levels uh, of the asylum. And the final story feels a lot like that uh, sci-fi movie Passenger, or Passengers, that just just came out, where it's like, um, that's the one with Chris oh, Pratt with and Chris Pratt. Uh, yeah, yeah. Jennifer Lawrence. Uh, but basically it's where Christmas. someone wakes up on a space station, space shuttle, and he or she's like the only one awake or whatever. Anyway, so four vastly different stories that feel like different books. Uh, if you're wanting to explore like theme or what is the point of this damn spiral or whatever, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, really Simple. interesting Simplism. book. Mm-hmm. What's cool too is at the end of the book, uh, Cedric put in like this code, like this cipher uh, for people to crack and it was like a thing on Goodreads too. I think like a year, year and a half after uh, someone technically apparently cracked it. So if you wanted to investigate that online, huh. I'm sure you can find it. But super weird, bizarro, interesting book. The hardest part was deciding like where to put it in my classroom library because I feel like it fits Which, like five different <laughs> right, genres right, right. or whatever. Um, but Ghost of Heaven is one that I've really enjoyed talking to students Where about. did you end up putting it? Um, a time travel section hmm. of about five books that I have in that Okay, section. there you go. <laughs> uh, I'd probably qual- qualify it as sci-fi. It feels like historical fiction in some places, sci-fi in others. So is your classroom library by genre? Pretty pretty close. I have it more like, I have like more specific sections. So like I used to have just a genre section that was fantasy and sci-fi together and it ended up being like a third of my entire library and I was like, that's not helpful. So now I have like fantasy split up into like paranormal, supernatural, magic and fairy tales, uh, things like that. And sci-fi with like time travel or space stories, dystopian stories, things like that. So I've been going back and forth on whether or not I want to keep it genre-based yeah. or like back to alphabetical order. Mm-hmm. Mm, genre. That's what I'm thinking. But my fantasy is the same way. Like it's an entire like yeah. shelf. It's kind of. I didn't a lot even. Of control. Yeah, you guys are much more specific than I was. I just had like fiction, same nonfiction, mm-hmm. young adult memoir. I did. I mean, I just put all the fiction together. Even I didn't even distinguish it from adult or young adult. They were all just mixed together. I do have just a fiction section when I'm too lazy and I don't sure. want to like figure out yep. where it should go. <laughs> For I, sure, it gets a green sticker. Yeah, there you go. Uh, my previous classroom library was organized by height. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> because I didn't want to spend time organizing it. But this summer, I have, in my insanity, decided to organize it and have logged all the books on that good source mm-hmm. um, site, book source, uh-huh. book source yeah. uh-huh. and then have put little pockets in them so that I can put like checkout cards, mm-hmm. and then have color coded the outside of them based on alphabet. So when you look at yeah. it, it's like red is A, and so that you, it'll be easier to alphabetize. Mm-hmm. But it's taking me forever. It does forever, and my daughter is really tired of pasting little <laughs> envelopes on the inside. But I'm gonna pull ones to highlight, you know, mm-hmm. either by author or genre, and I have a place on the top where I'm gonna highlight different ones. I highlight ones on the top or like in the front of the room, but no, I'm not gonna rearrange it, and I'm just gonna keep it like it is. Yeah, yeah. So it's easier too. Um, can you talk a little bit about? Do you use book talks in your classroom, like for students to do, and how you kind of set those up? And yeah, yes, would be the answer. I I do uh, have students do it. I I would probably say the first month or so, uh, and this is talking specifically in the elective course I teach. Mm-hmm. Um, I say the first month or so, uh, I do a book talk every day, um, and ultimately, 
about a month, month and a half in, introduce it as an assignment where students are then gonna book talk themselves. And so I, at that point, I hopefully encourage them to be doing different books than what I've talked about. Not only because then it's not a repeat, but um, I have, and I try to talk about how, no matter how much I try to read various genres, I am my own reader, I have my own biases. Mm -hmm. I read what I like to read, that's what I'm preaching to you and that's what I do. Um, and so it's cool to have the kids give the talks because they cover up my gaps <laughs> and weaknesses, um, which is awesome. Um, so I then kind of break down for them like what are some of the types of book talks I've given so far. So sometimes it's just talking about the book like a lot of ours have been so far. Uh, if there's a book where I really want to highlight like um, the writing style, I'll maybe do a read aloud, a couple pages read out loud from it. For instance, uh, Sean David Hutchinson's We Are the Ants comes to mind, where in the very first chapter, I feel like he just captures the sarcastic, life sucks, teenager attitude, <laughs> and I just want the book to speak for itself. Um, there are some where I show like a book trailer, sort of try to advertise the book, creepy books like I Hunt Killers by Barry Liga that have really awesome book trailers. I like to use those to advertise the book because I feel like they do a better job than what I could do. And there are different approaches you could take too, but I, at that point, then sort of make that known to the students that these are different approaches that I've intentionally taken for an intentional effect. Uh, and I want you to think about the books that you would talk about and how you would approach that. Um, and then before any of them actually do it, I uh, take in from the great things I've learned from the Iowa Writing Project, uh, and workshopping and stuff, I have them actually get in small groups and they workshop their talks in the small group setting where they get feedback from their peers of what worked, what didn't work, and only three three or four students would have heard that talk already, so it's still new for the class, but it's a more enhanced draft, if you will, uh, of their talk, and I think a low stakes sort of way, and they can do that, like bless, press, address type feedback too, it's helpful uh, for how, whatever type of feedback they want. But, and then I have a calendar basically set up where I have two per day. So it doesn't, it's not just a whole period of sitting, listening to both talks. And do you have a time limit? Yeah, like three to five minutes okay. is usually what I'm looking for. And then it just works out really nicely to where there's about a month <coughs> span where I don't have to do that prep. It's the kids who are doing it. They know when they're going. It's not like a surprise so they can be prepared. But, um, but then it's great to just keep a list of all that. And at the end of the semester, it's like, here, your Christmas break or your summer break, here are some books for you to check out that your classmates have really liked. Do you, what do you do when it appears that the students haven't actually read the book? It's all very surface level. Hmm. Like in a conference or from a, a book, book talk? talk. Um, hopefully that would be, I mean a lot of them are, I preempt that by a lot of them, I've probably seen them reading that book okay. in class. I mean, that would be something, hopefully, that I would catch before it happened. Okay. Um, otherwise, I mean, to me, the assignment isn't big enough where I like would create a big ordeal of it. Okay. But just sort of talking with the students, being sure. You know, sure. Much like anything, you're representing that you've read this. Yeah. Was, you know, and do you individually conference with them about books as well? Yeah. Yeah probably about four or five times throughout the semester. I, working with the 90 minute block, I get the kids reading up to half an hour per day. And so I can get through like four or five kids per day. So it really only takes me about two, two and a half weeks. So you conference every day? Every day, during the reading time. Yeah. I've gotten away from it just because I run out of time. Yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, cause I have a 47 minutes, so I can only yeah. give them about 10 or 15 Sorry. minutes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I mean, I totally get it, because like the year before last, I was conferencing with my sophomore classes, and those were, I mean, I we have a class period of 45 minutes, and then the 90 minute block, but I, I still tried to, 15 per day is what I tried, it got hard, on the, yeah. I mean, I get it. It's so you basically really do like, you conference with that kid, and then you're done with that kid until like, you get through everybody else? Right. Why did I never think about that? Yeah. I would always like feel like I had to conference with everybody like every week. Hmm. Oh. And that was not working. Well, and then yeah, I... that would be tough. Yeah. That would be super tough. Yeah. Well, then for each round through, I would have like a different focus. So like my first round through is looking at their surveys or, okay, what do you, 
who are you as a reader type thing. My second round through would be after they've set like personalized reading goals, let's touch base with what your goals are. Um, another round through would be maybe talking about what their semester project topics are, how that's been going as far as the books that they're reading towards that. Uh, fourth time through, we're getting close to like spring break or Thanksgiving break, talking about how you're gonna be sure you don't fall off the table when you know, you're away from me for a week right. or so. I'm not telling you to read for 30 minutes. <laughs> how are you gonna do this or things like that, so. Cool. But, yeah. Cool, thanks, can I take your class? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
formerly huge uh, rock star. Blade's mother uh, unfortunately died when he was nine years old, so he's been growing up in the limelight of his father's success uh, in trying to form his own identity, but struggling with the fact uh, that he often finds himself and his family on the pages of the tabloids uh, due to his father's most recent uh, rehab stint or whatever the case uh, might be a lot of negative attention to be uh, negative attention to be sure uh, all while at the same time he's trying to um, determine who he is as his own person uh, he's also sort of struggling with the uh, ins and outs of uh, high school romance with his girlfriend girlfriend named chapel but really just trying to navigate the social structure uh, of high school and uh, becoming a young adult. Uh, now everything sort of changes when um, there's this family issue that's brought to the limelight uh, where Blade starts to question everything he thought he knew about himself and about his family. Uh, and ultimately what happens is this causes uh, Blade to go on a um, to go on a, a trip halfway across the world uh, to Ghana, where he finds himself in this village where he comes just close enough uh, to, to finding out the answers to this question that this, these recent events have, ha have asked of him uh, and, his, uh, and his life and his role in his family and whatnot. Uh, and really it just turns into this big search for meaning in his own life on a very grand scale. Um, what I really love about this book, aside from the fact of the superb uh, poetic writing of Kwame Alexander, is the use of music uh, that this book has. Um, there are songs written by Blade uh, throughout the entire entire book, and what's really cool with the audiobook version of uh, Solo, uh, Kwame Alexander um, has the actual songs included, uh, and a lot of them are, are really catchy and it just adds another dynamic to the book. I often found myself, uh, after finishing one of those chapters, going back and, and listening to those songs again because it really sort of drove home the point. So uh, particularly if you're in a high school classroom and you're looking for a way to get poetry more um, more involved in your class and, and turning kids on a bit more to poetry, uh, Solo is a book that uh, is perfect for any age, uh, but specifically uh, high school readers uh, would be certainly one that I would uh, encourage you to check out. For the second book talk this month, I'm going to shift gears into content that's a little bit more serious. Uh, the second book is a, is a book that I read, uh, again, at the tail end of summer, uh, and it has definitely uh, stayed with me in my mind uh, over the past few weeks. Uh, the book is called What Made Maddie Run? The Secret Struggles and Tragic Death of an All-American Teen uh, by ESPN journalist Kate Fagan. And Kate Fagan originally told uh, the story of the death of 19-year-old runner Madison Holleran in an ESPNW article uh, in 2015 titled uh, Split Image. Uh, and in this most recent book, uh, What Made Maddie Run, uh, she expands on the story, bringing in uh, other mental health care professionals uh, and other people who can uh, add uh, more substance. Not that there, there was tons of substance to her original article, but it just makes it a, an entirely more immersive reading experience. And basically what the, the book gets into is the story of Madison Holleran, who at age 19, as a freshman in college at Penn University, uh, committed suicide at the very beginning of her second semester. Now, the book goes on to explain that Madison grew up in Allendale, New Jersey, uh, and throughout her high school experience, she was a star athlete, great student, uh, popular among both boys and girls, uh, and uh, she was really a two-sport two uh, star athlete. Um, her, her first love when it came to sports was definitely soccer, but as she got closer um, to the end of her high school experience, uh, she started to get noticed more and more for uh, her track uh, and her running capabilities, despite the fact that it wasn't a sport she enjoyed as much as, as she did soccer. Another thing that Madison really wanted to do was to go to an Ivy League school. And so ultimately, she gets an offer for track, not soccer, at Penn University. And kind of a surprise move, she, she had been offered scholarship for soccer at uh, Lehigh University, but she chose uh, to go to the Ivy League school in Penn. Uh, and she, she gets to school and realizes uh, it's, it's not as easy for her as it was in high school uh, to make friends, to have sort of that social life uh, 
academics, athletics, uh, balance. And she starts to to sort of get into a bit of a depression, a downward spiral a little bit. Uh, now, the thing that's tricky is, uh, as many of you know, as teachers of, of young adults, um, her what she projected about herself on social media uh, made it difficult for her friends or, and family even uh, to notice that there was that much going wrong uh, because in the same uh, on instagram whatever the only things that you would see were really positive uh, images uh, pictures of her smiling uh, hashtags of being happy and all this stuff and so what was on the outside uh, was something very different uh, than what uh, madison was feeling on the inside uh, what I like about this book is it brings to light a very what I feel is a very important topic uh, as teachers and as as members of this school system of of how can we be more aware of the um, the drive for perfection that so many of our students have uh, and, and this constant uh, use and role of social media as far as making it seem like uh, other people aren't going through similar struggles uh, that we're going through. Uh, and how things can kind of turn into a vicious cycle of sorts. Uh, I love how the book approaches this um, topic and approaches it in a, in a way that I think uh, is helpful. It's not glamorizing anything. Uh, Kate Fagan does a really good job of, of talking about her own experiences. Uh, she was able to get a lot of access from the Holleran family. Uh, and she also speaks to, uh, as I mentioned before, professionals in the field uh, that really take this book from the launching off point of uh, Madison Holleran's experience, uh, but I think starts to have a really important conversation uh, in our country uh, as a whole. So if you're looking for a piece of um, you know, biography and nonfiction that is kind of eye-opening, honestly, as a teacher, but uh, would also be an important thing for maybe uh, some students of yours uh, to take a look at and really to start this conversation that you know, uh, you're not alone, that everyone sort of uh, goes through these challenging uh, situations. Um, I, I think this is a book that um, that, sh that should be read and should be read uh, widely. Uh, in the show notes, I'll also put a link to uh, the original article. There's a 10 minute uh, video uh, sort of uh, documentary piece that goes along with the article that makes for a superb su supplement to, uh, to a book talk of this book. Uh, but really helps put into context uh, what the book is about. So a little bit different uh, vibe with this book than uh, Kwame Alexander's, but What Made Maddie Run, The Secret Struggles and Tragic Death of an All-American Teen uh, is another book uh, that I would add to your to-be-read list if I were you. Thanks for listening to the Yo Teach podcast. I hope you enjoyed episode five. Look for episode six next month. If you enjoyed what you heard, please let us know by reaching out to us on Twitter at ICTE underscore board, by following our Facebook page, or commenting in our Facebook group. Also, be sure to bookmark our website, www.iowaenglishteachers.org, and check it out often. That's where you'll be able to find show notes from this month's episode that include all of the pertinent links and info. The podcast is produced by me, Austin Hall. Music for this episode from the Free Music Archive by Josh Woodward, Lee Rosevere, BOPD, and Broke for Free. Thank you also to Wendy Bolivar, Kelly Murley, Nikki Smith, Kirsty Ewald, and Britt Yunk for their contributions to this month's show. Thanks again, ICTE. Until next time, this has been your host, Austin Hall, for Yo Teach the official podcast of the Iowa Council of Teachers of English.